Well, it's fantastic to see you. If you're a guest, I'm David. I am the senior pastor. If you notice something different about from last week, is we put all the chairs back. And we put all the chairs back. Yeah. <laughs> and we put all the chairs back because if we didn't, you wouldn't all be able to sit here. And uh, I understand the social distancing thing and I get all that. I can tell you this, this is the most people we've had since before COVID by far in the service. And um, it's pretty much looks like it did before. And so listen, here's our strategy. You're adults. It's not my place to tell you what you should and shouldn't do. Okay? We don't turn people away to worship ever. Not in all my life. I've never told someone they can't come to worship. So you're comfortable. We're good. If you're not comfortable, you got to do what makes you comfortable. Online, we love you. We're glad you're watching. For as long as you need to be online, God bless you. You stay there. And you let the Holy Spirit lead you. And, and that's kind of how we approach it. And I just pray every day that this thing turns out to honor God. Because that's all we really want to do. So we're glad you're here. And you're a guest. We're excited that you're here. And uh, there's no more chairs to put in this place. There's no more social distancing I can give you than what you've got. Do your best. And... Uh, you know, let's just know the Lord's in control of everything. We're in a series entitled The Man After God's Own Heart. It's about David, not this David, King David. And uh, King David is probably the single most relatable person you can find in all the Bible. Old Testament, New Testament, you relate to David. And not the greatest. Jesus is the greatest. But it's hard to relate to Jesus because we ain't the son of God and we ain't going to be perfect. But David, we can relate to David. David sinned, you know, and we, we get it. And, 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 and here was David just trying to live for the Lord, and we can put ourselves, we're just trying to live for the Lord, trying to live for Jesus, and sometimes we sin, and sometimes we stumble, and we get it. So we can connect with David totally 100%. Um, and last week, we kind of started this series, and we begin not at the beginning of David's story, but really in, in chapter 17 with David and Goliath. Because that gives us the heart of who David is. And in there we just learned that David was a man of faith. He sought in his life to honor God above all else. Above all else, David wanted to honor God. And he did so in faith. But this week, we're going to kind of come to the beginning. And we're going to be in chapter 15 and 16. We're going to focus on a few verses. And we're going to ask the question, why David? Why was David the one uh, that God picked? God chose. And his grace and his wisdom and his election, God chose David. So here... Here's the thing I want you to get from the message today. This is what matters. In David, in David, God saw a man of faith who would honor him through his obedience. In David, God saw a man of faith who would honor him in his, and the key word being, obedience. So, first point that I have for your message today, first thing I want you to see is this. You can only disobey God for so long. You can only disobey God for so long to understand and answer the question, why David? we got to answer the question, why not Saul? Because Saul was king. So why all of a sudden is David going to be king? To answer that question, we're going to have to go way back into the history of the life of the people of Israel in the Old Testament. Now, here's the thing. I understand the Old Testament can be difficult to grasp. If you're a fairly new Christian, if you're not a Christian, if you, you know, have only been coming to church for a short time, if you did not grow up with a lot of you know, Old Testament stuff, it can be tough to understand some of the Old Testament passages, and we're going to see some difficult stuff today. So here's the thing I want you to, to, to realize when you approach the Old Testament, but the whole Bible. Let me give you just a few key principles that will help you in all of this. The first, when I started seminary in May of 1983. I, I counted that up the other day on the calculated number of years. That's 
37 years ago. That was a long time. I didn't seem that long ago. But uh, I went to Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary for my master's and my doctorate. I started off my master's and got it in San Antonio at the extension. The professors would fly down. First, first semester, first month, first day of class of the first thing I ever studied, systematic theology. Dr. Sloan walks in, first things out of his mouth were the single most important thing I ever learned in seminary. I could have stopped all my seminary education after that. I got all I needed right here. The Bible is clearest at the cross. If you want to understand the Old Testament, understand this. The Bible is clearest at the cross. It's where you go. And here's why. The Old Testament promises us something. If you read it, there's this promise, it looks like. And the New Testament fulfills it. And it's fulfilled in Jesus. All of the Bible is God revealing something to us. And the ultimate complete revelation is always Jesus. Everything comes back to Jesus. Even from the Old Testament perspective. There are three main people in the Old Testament. I shared this with you last week. Abraham, Moses, and David. Basically, the Old Testament is their story. <laughs> now, let me oversimplification, but I'm just telling you. If you want to understand the Old Testament, look at it from it all somehow basically relates to Abraham, Moses, and David. Now, I tell you that because we're going back now to the time of Moses real quick. In Exodus chapter 17... And then in Deuteronomy 25, which is an explanation of what happens, looking back on Exodus 17, there's a story. The people of Israel have left Egypt. They're on their way to the promised land. They've got to go to Mount Sinai and get the Ten Commandments. And on the way, there's this group of people called the Amalekites. And the Amalekites do not want to let the people of Israel get where they're going, so they stand in the way. And in Exodus 17, there was this battle. What this battle is best known for is this the battle where as long as Moses had his hands in the air, they would win. When he dropped his hands, they would start to lose. And so they propped his hands up so they would win. When the battle was over, he told Joshua, someday these Amalekites have got to be destroyed. Deuteronomy 25 tells us why he felt that way, why God moved that way. Looking back on what happened, Moses reminded them. Now, when they left Egypt, there were hundreds and hundreds of thousands of these people, and they were lined up going. And what would happen back then is the, 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 the warriors and the leaders and the strongest men would be out front and cast them at an enemy, and towards the back would be the women, uh, children, uh, sick, elderly, you know, people you wanted to kind of protect. What the Amalekites did was they attacked in the rear. They snuck around and in a cowardly fashion attacked the women, the children, the sick, and the elderly. That was, that was just an evil thing to do. And because of that, God placed a judgment on the cruelty. Now, the Exodus, you know, I, I believe the Exodus occurred in early date in the 15th century. Some believe it was a little bit later date in the 13th century. But whatever, from that time to the time of Saul, it's about either 250 to 400 years. I would say 400 years. But in that 400-year time, they keep doing things. In Numbers 14, they join the Canaanites in attacking the people of Israel. In Judges, we see in chapter 3 and chapter 6, they keep attacking the people of Israel. In other words, they keep going after the Israelites. They become their enemies. Now, the people of the Amalekites, they were pagans. through and through. They were Canaanites. Back in May, when I did that series on Elijah, the very first week, I talked about Baalism because they were part of that worship set. And, you know, it was a disgusting way to worship. It was a complete rejection of everything decent. They would sacrifice their children. They performed horribly deviant sexual acts. I mean, they were just an immoral and godly people. Not only that, they set themselves against the people of God, which means they set themselves against God. Get that picture. In Samuel chapter 8, 1 Samuel chapter 8, Israel wants a king like everybody else. There's a whole bunch of stuff involved in that. In chapter 9, God gives them Saul. 
Saul becomes king. In chapter 13, Saul is about to go to war with the Philistines, the arch enemies, the rivals of the Israelites. I told you that last week with the whole Goliath thing. They're not to go to war until Samuel comes and gives a blessing through the sacrifice of worship. The office of the priest and the judge, which was Samuel, is different than the office of the king. The Israelites are getting nervous. They're not really experienced warriors. They're fleeing. The Philistines are a strong, mighty army. Saul starts panicking, and he offers to sacrifice himself to get them ready to go to war. And at that time, Samuel shows up. And Samuel, just because of God, working through Samuel, says, you disobeyed God. And Saul says, well, I was getting impatient. I didn't know what to do. We had to go fight. I love God. He said, no, no, you should have waited. You disobeyed. And because you disobeyed, your kingdom will be taken from you. None of your descendants will rule. It was God's judgment against Saul's sin. Now we come to chapter 15. Long time has passed. At least some time has passed. God's going to give Saul an opportunity to show his faith and his obedience to him. He says, I want you to go destroy the Amalekites. I'll explain more about that in just a minute. I want you to go in to wipe them off the face of the earth. So Saul goes and he fights them. But he doesn't destroy all of them. He doesn't kill all the people. He doesn't kill all of them. He kills most of all of them, all but one. He keeps the king. Keeps the king Agog as a trophy. Look what I've done. He doesn't get rid of all the sheep and all the cattle like he's supposed to, which God has said is given over to him. He kept the best as the spoils of war, he says, for a sacrifice, but it was for him and his guys. God sends Samuel to deal with him. On the way, Samuel finds out that Saul did this, that Saul built a monument to himself. Look what I have done. I have defeated the Amalekites. And Samuel catches up to Saul. Verse 17, here it comes. Samuel said, is it not true that you were little in your own eyes? You were made the head of the tribes of Israel. And the Lord anointed you king over Israel. And the Lord sent you on a mission and said, go and utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are all exterminated. That is harsh. I get it. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? But you rushed upon the spoil and did what? Get this was evil in the sight of the Lord. Now that word to destroy the Amalekites seems tough to us. The word destroy is the Hebrew word haram. Uh, there's an Arab concept that comes based on that, similar to that called the harem, that a, an Arab sheik or a king or a leader could have a harem of wives. And uh, th that harem is dedicated to him. No one can ever marry any of them. They're his. They're, they're separated out. That's what the word means, separated, dedicated. God would take people who had rebelled against him thoroughly, and he would put a ban, a haran, on them so that they would be dedicated to him. The dedication was for their destruction. Now, I know so that, that seems harsh, but so let me, let me kind of put it in more modern terms. Say there was, there was a king with a kingdom, and there were people outside his kingdom who kept coming and attacking the small outlying towns and villages. And when they would go, they would take the crops, and they would kill the people, and they would take all the women and children and plunder and all that stuff. At some point, the citizens of his kingdom expect the king to defend them and defend their honor. Would that not happen? Would not the king go at some point and defeat the enemies because they have completely been at war with him? For 400 plus years, the Amalekites have been at war with Israel. It means they've been at war with God. There wasn't any chance they were coming to be worshipers of God. Baal worshipers with only one or two exceptions in Scripture, Rahab's the best known, Ruth is another. They always, always, in opposition to God, they never became worshipers. For 400 years, God gave them a chance to repent. He said, it is time for you to pay the price. It's time for you 
to be judged as a protection of his own people for his own credibility at stake. So he sent Saul to do it, only Saul didn't do it. Saul didn't obey him. The word obey means to hear and to act. Deuteronomy 6.4, the Shema, the most important verse in all the Old Testament to Jews, and all anything of the Jews. Hear, O Israel, hear, O Israel, the Lord thy God is one. Hear means to listen and obey. To obey is to act on what you know. He said to Saul, you didn't obey me. You didn't do what I told you. Not only that, you did evil. Can you imagine you thinking you were doing what God wants you to do? And he says, no, you were doing evil because you didn't do it the way I told you to do it. Well, Saul puts up in kind of a defense and says, you know, this was the reason why I did it for this reason. And, you know, he, he did it because he wanted to give Agog, you know, this, you know, to the Lord. But that didn't work. And he wanted to give the, the best of the crop, the best of the sheep and the cattle. But they were already God's. He could, should have done any of that. So he asked for forgiveness, and in verse 25, we see this. Now, therefore, Saul speaking, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may worship the Lord. He's talking to Samuel. Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord. And the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. And as Samuel turned to go, Saul seized the edge of his robe, and it tore. And Samuel said to him, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today. And has given it to your neighbor who is, get this, better than you. Here's what God says. Samuel says to God, you rejected the Lord. The word rejected means to despise, to hold in contempt. Now, now Saul can say, you know, worship the Lord. He did. He didn't, he didn't believe in the Canaanite gods. He didn't worship those gods. He only worshiped Yahweh. I mean, he, he, he worshiped Yahweh so much, he even did a sacrifice, which he wasn't supposed to do. I mean, he said, I did all that stuff. But in reality, because he didn't obey God, he rejected God. He held God in contempt is what it means. It means to disdain him. So God has rejected you. That's harsh. To know that God has rejected you. I would hate to think that God has rejected me. He says, I'm giving your kingdom. He says, not only will your dynasty end, I'm going to take your kingdom away to you and give it to someone who is better than you. I can't imagine what that must feel like. God's saying there's someone better than you. Here, I, I just know I'm a pastor of this church, man. And I love this church, and, you know, and, and, I, and I do what I can, and I serve the best way I can. I can't imagine God saying, you know what, David? I'm going to give this church to someone better than you. I'm like, who, God? It's not Joe, is it? I mean, it can't be Joe. <laughs> Joe's, not, Joe's not better. And the rest of the staff, none of, none of my current, none of the staff got better. Who are you giving it to? probably a lot of options, but I don't want to give you any hint on who they are. <laughs> this is the thing. Saul disobeyed God. And you can only disobey God for so long. You can only live a life in disobedience to God for so long. A few things to help you. Help me. God is patient and gives us time to repent. You should always understand this about God. He's patient. He was patient with the Amalekites. He gave them 400 years to get it together, and they still kept attacking and attacking the people of Israel. He was patient with Saul. I mean, he'd given Saul another chance to prove his obedience, and Saul just still disobeyed. He was patient with David. David sinned all the time. We're going to go through in a couple weeks to see the sin of Bathsheba. You know what David did? He repented. And ask forgiveness. But regardless of all that, David never disobeyed the direct command of God, nor did he ever worship any other gods. God is patient with us. Jonah, 
he went to the city of Nineveh. He said, in 40 days, God's going to destroy you. Didn't even give him a chance to repent because Jonah didn't want to repent. You know what they did? They repented anyways. You know what God did? God did not destroy that city because God always gives us a chance to repent. Peter said, it's God's will that none should perish, but all come to repentance. God gives us a chance to repent, but sooner or later, a just God will set things right. God is just. We demand justice. Not justice like our culture thinks justice is. The justice that comes from God is justice. He is a just God. Sooner or later, he sets things right. He had to set things right with the Amalekites. He set things right with Saul. And when Jesus Christ comes again, he will set things right in this world once and for all. Until then, he is patiently giving us a chance to repent. With that in mind, understand this. You can, you can appear... You can appear to love and serve God, but really, you only love and serve yourself. This was Saul's problem. He appeared that he loved and served God, but he loved and served himself, really. You know, he worshiped God. He believed in God, said all the right things. At the end of the day, he didn't do what God told him to do. He didn't serve God because he didn't love him. He built a monument to himself, verse 12 tells us, to himself, not to God. He was the most important thing in his life. Today, on this side of the cross, we look towards the concept of understanding what it means to be a follower of Jesus. There's a, there's a phrase I use a lot. If you're fairly new, you've never heard me say it. But I talk about being, everybody having a, a designer Jesus. People like to design their own Jesus. It's a part of our culture. They like Jesus. They just don't necessarily like him like he's presented in the New Testament. So they'll, they'll take bits and pieces of Jesus for themselves, the parts they like. We see it all the time. We see people like, well, you know, I mean, I'm a Christian, you know, and, and, and Jesus, but, you know, in the resurrection, I don't really, I don't believe in the supernatural. I don't believe in the resurrection. Last January, pre-COVID, I remember what those days were like. If only we knew then what we knew now, right? And I preached a series, they saw him alive about the resurrection. They saw Jesus alive. The, the Christianity rises or falls on the resurrection of Christ. You can't take the resurrection away. You know, people say, I hear them, there are churches today. There'll be churches in our town. I don't think they're meeting yet because I guess I don't know why they're not meeting. But they'll say, you know, there's a lot of different ways to get to God. And Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. He's it. But they'll teach something else. Why? They're designing their own Jesus. They're building monuments to themselves. They'll give lip service, but in reality, they love and serve self. They love and serve self. They love and serve self. Saul's disobedience was evidence of his lack of commitment or faith in God. Ultimately, he can say he believed and worshiped and had faith all he wanted, but his disobedience, it was the evidence that he lacked the single most important thing he needed, faith, because he wasn't going to honor God without faith. Saw that last week when we looked at David and Goliath. You're not going to honor God if you don't have faith. It's hard to have faith if you don't honor God. They go together. So why not Saul? It's simple. Saul disobeyed God. He had no faith. Which brings us then to the second thing I want you to see in the message today. We need to understand what matters to God. We really do. Why David? Samuel, in chapter 16, was told by God, go down to Bethlehem and go find Jesse. Now, Samuel is one of these critical, critical guys in all the Old Testament. In fact, I told you there are three main guys, Abraham, Moses, and David. There are three other guys that are right below them that matter. They're transitional figures. This will help you understand the Old Testament as well. 
Joshua, Samuel, and Elijah. Joshua transitions the people of Israel from wandering in the wilderness with Moses to the conquest of the land. Elijah, and we looked at Elijah back in May, Elijah transitioned the people from focusing on the kings to the prophets. By the time you get to Elijah, the prophetic word becomes important because the kings are failing. Samuel transitioned from the judges to the kingship. He made two men kings. He anointed them kings. That's how important he is. And so Samuel comes onto the scene, and he goes down to Bethlehem to find Jesse. Jesse, by the way, was the grandson of Ruth and of Boaz. You ever wonder why the book of Ruth was written? People have all sorts of reasons they write it. Read the real end, the very end of the Ruth. It tells us that they were the descendants, or excuse me, the ancestors of David. That's why it's there, to help us understand something about the lineage of David. Later on, to understand something about the lineage of Jesus. Remember what I said, the Old Testament, three main guys, Moses, Abraham and David. It relates to those guys in some way. So Samuel comes. People of Bethlehem are scared because Samuel's there. He's the judge. What do we do wrong? He said, no, no, we're going to have a sacrifice. Go get Jesse. Jesse, bring your sons. I want to see them. Verse 6 picks up here. When they entered, he, that is Samuel, looked at Eliab, and he thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look at his appearance, at his height, or his stature, because I have rejected him. That's not the same rejection as Saul. It's different. For God sees not as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And so he says, the oldest son, then he's going to bring several other sons, seven of them. None of them are it. They're just looking at the outward appearance. You know, Eliab, you know Saul, when he became king, big, strong, strapping guy, Eliab, the same way. And God says, I'm not looking at that. I don't look at what you look at. See, here's the thing. God looks at people differently than us. He does. We, look, we like to judge a book by its cover, don't we? We look at people. We'll see someone. We'll make a snap judgment. I'll look at what car they drive. You know, all right. I can tell something about your car. You go to a neighborhood. What cars are parked out front? All right. You know, I'll make that judgment. We, I, you know, we're all a little bit judgmental. Aren't we? we see someone in, 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 in the store. We look at how they're dressed. And we start making judgments, don't we? You got a teenage daughter. And that boy comes to the door. You make a judgment right off the bat. And it's never good. Never good job. I never made it. There's never a boy I dated my daughter that I thought was worth anything. None. And I was right every time. There ain't none. She's 33, and the guy she's dating now, I'm like, oh, no. I won't even talk about the one that came to Las Cruces last year. We judge a book by its cover, don't we? And God, he looks at the heart. Here's the thing about the heart. The heart is not how you feel it. It's not your emotions. It's not about being good-hearted. I grew up in South Texas, and I listened. I grew up on rock and roll music. But you're from Texas. You also listen to country, not the Nashville stuff. You listen to Texas country. You listen to Waylon Jennings. You listen to Willie Nelson. You listen to David Allen Coe, Jerry Jeff Walker, Chris Christopherson. And I love Waylon Jennings. I listen to Waylon all the time. I was listening to all this past week. I was playing Waylon. He's got a song, Good-Hearted Woman. I sing that to Debbie all the time. I'm in love with the good-hearted woman. She's in love with a good time in me. She says, quit singing. you horrible at it, man. <laughs> Couldn't carry a tune in a bucket and a half. He's not talking about being a good hearted. The heart was the place of the real you. The heart was the place of the emotion. The heart was the place of the soul of the person. He looked at the heart, who they were. Couldn't find one. Samuel said, you got anybody else? He says, just got one. He's out in the field. Samuel said, bring him in. We ain't going to continue this thing until it... he comes. So here it is, verse 12. 
So he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy, which means kind of red hair, beautiful eyes and a handsome appearance. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from that day forward. And Samuel arose and went to Ramah. He was the one, David, and he anointed him. He set him apart. And he did that, and it says the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit. Now, I know in the Old Testament, we don't see it. It's not called the Holy Spirit. You know, progressive revelation, God reveals himself progressively, slowly. That doesn't mean the whole, you know, Trinity exists in the Old Testament. We just don't see it till the new. This is the Holy Spirit. He came mightily upon David. Holy Spirit came some in the Old Testament. He was on Saul. The next verse tells us that he left Saul. David had that mighty appearance. Why? Because of his heart. Why is all this important? To understand why this is important, we're going to go all the way back to chapter 13. When the whole Philistine thing and that first sin of Saul, this is what Samuel says to him. David's God through Samuel. But now your kingdom shall not endure. The Lord has sought out for himself. Get this. A man after his own heart. And the Lord has appointed him as ruler over his people. Because you have not kept what the Lord commanded. You haven't obeyed God. You see, the man after God's own heart obeys God. Doesn't mean they're sinless. Doesn't mean there's perfect. Ain't nobody left. Only one was ever that way, Jesus. But they keep God's commands. They obey God. They worship God. They serve God. They honor God in everything they do. That was David. He became the king of all kings. Every king was judged against him. And then Jesus came, and David was just a placeholder. And Jesus came, he is the ultimate king of all kings. David always pointed to Jesus. David points to Jesus. And the man after God's own heart, ultimately that person was fulfilled in Christ who was the man of God's heart. It's all pointing to Jesus. And what also points to Jesus is that the people of God's heart obey God. Remember last week we talked, showed you that David, that he was the man who sought the honor of God. Here's the thing. We talk all the time about honor God. All the time we're talking in this church. You need to honor God, honor God, praise God, glorify God, honor God. We talk about all the time. Here's why. When you seek to honor God, obedience is natural. In your life, when you seek to honor God, you know what you do? You obey God. Yes, you're going to sin. I get it. But you're going to obey God. Your desire is to obey God. Your desire is to worship him. That's why, that's why you're all here, right? Despite all the stuff going on, you're here. Because you want to worship God as if in you. Or you're seeking to know more about God. But something drove you. God drove you. Drives you to worship. He drives you to honor. He drives you to glorify him. That's what we do. Now, I know it's good Baptists. We're concerned about this whole obedience thing. Because, you know, we're saved by faith. And we want to make sure that faith, you know, is central. But understand this. Faith does not cancel out obedience. Faith does not cancel out obedience. Whenever we're confused about something and we don't understand, you know where's a good place to go? Go to Jesus. Here's what Jesus said on the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, chapter 7, verse 21. This can be tough. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Not everyone who says, Lord, Lord. Not everyone who calls upon me as Lord will enter into heaven. But wait a minute. Didn't Paul write later on, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved? Yes. To confess is to agree with, to the degree that he is the Lord in the fullest sense, which involves obedience. To believe is to commit your life completely to, to heart, you completely commit. 
Jesus said, there are some people who call me Lord, Lord. They don't believe. They're not committed. They haven't confessed. How do I know this? They haven't done the will of my Father. They haven't done the will of the Lord. Paul would write in Ephesians 2, that great passage we love, for by grace are you saved through faith. Baptists say, oh, yeah. Not of yourselves. Oh, no. Not of any work. It's the gift of God. Oh, yes, it's the gift. Not of works. No, no. Lest man should boast. And we all love that part. Oh, Baptists, we just get so happy. We can go eat fried chicken when that's over. And then there's that 10th verse that says, but we are created by God to do good works. Uh-oh. You mean faith is not enough? Faith is enough to save you. How do I know you have faith? Because you live the life of faith. You obey God. See, obedience reveals our faith. So when Jesus says, love God, love others, well, what do we mean? Well, honor God, which is why we always talk about honoring God. And then he told us what loving others meant. He said, go make disciples of them. Oh, yeah. That's why they say get people to Jesus as fast as you can. Not only that, but remember that sermon series I did back in summer? You know, we just don't forget these things. All these sermon series are, get this, interconnected. Get it? August series, interconnected, interconnected. Jesus says, a new commandment I give you. You know what you do with commandments? You obey them. A new commandment I give you, that you, get this, love one another. Love one another. Why? Why was David picked as king? It's an act of grace by God. I gave it. Why David? Because David had faith. How do we know David had faith? Because he obeyed God and Saul didn't. It's hard to honor God if you don't obey him. Saul tried. Saul failed. So let me ask you this question. In your life, where do you disobey God? Where in your life do you disobey God? Is it that you've never come to Christ? I mean, you may be a person here who's never trusted Jesus as Savior. You may be watching online and never trusted Christ as Savior. Well, that's where you're disobedient. Maybe the day you need to give your life to Christ. That's the act of obedience is to have faith, to trust him. The obedience doesn't save you. Faith saves you. That faith is lived out in you obeying God. Maybe, maybe you're not obeying God because you don't seek to honor him. Maybe you're not obeying God because you don't really have faith, the faith that propels you through the most difficult times. Maybe you're not honoring God because you don't seek repentance. Like Saul, you won't be forgiven, but you don't ever repent. Maybe you don't honor God because you don't love people. I mean, you don't love people because you don't help them understand who Jesus is. You don't connect with them in that way. You don't help people come to God. Maybe, maybe your struggle is that you don't know what God's calling you to do, and you're just not living the way life God wants you to live. Listen, I can't tell you what you should do in life, except for this. You need to completely honor God and give your life to him. And so here's the thing. If you want to live a life of obedience, commit your life to God in faith. Trust God completely with your life and honor him above all else. Some of you today need to make the commitment to obey God, to love God, love others. Look at your life. Are you closer to Saul or are you closer to David? Whatever you need to do today, commit yourself. Commit yourself to obeying God. In just a moment, we'll have our invitation. We'll be down here. If you need to come and pray with one of us, if you want one of us to help you through something, if you want to give your life to Christ, you want to join your church, we want you to come. So, Father, thank you. We know that all we have comes from you. 
We know we and understand that you, Father, have given us unbelievable opportunities. You're so patient with us to give us a chance to come to you in faith. But we only have so much time. And at some point, you will set everything straight. So God, help us to quit just loving and serving ourselves. Help us to move away from the disobedience of Saul. And help us to realize you look at our heart, God. And in our heart, help us to come to you in faith and give ourselves to you in obedience for your glory and for your kingdom. In the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. Would you come? You stand. We'll be here to greet you.